Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast, where we do biblical, intellectual, and uncompromising theology. Ezekiel 40. I, uh, I've i already done an episode on Ezekiel 40. Uh, I talked about uh, the incompatibility of a particular interpretation of Ezekiel 40 with the New Testament. Um, and I want to kind of go further into that. Uh, in the previous episode, I, I, I talked about the, the sin offering that is obviously present in the Ezekielian temple. And if that temple is to be taken literally, that is, if it is to be interpreted as a literal temple and everything that it entails being also interpreted literally to be literal ordinances, such as literal sacrifices, a literal Levitical priesthood, etc., then we're at serious variance with the new with the new covenant or the new testament the theology of the new testament one of the reasons being a large reason coming from the book of hebrews the epistle to the hebrews uh one part in particular explicitly forbidding uh the need for uh sin offerings if there is remission of sins uh and uh so that that's by the way that's hebrews 10:18 where there is remission of these or where there is remission of sins, there is no longer a sin offering. But there are about six, five in addition to the sin offerings, but six total reasons why that particular way of interpreting the Ezekielian temple cannot be correct. Um, sin offerings is one. If you, if you take the Ezekiel 40 onward temple to be literal, like brick and mortar, bloody animal sacrifices, the whole bit, uh, then you're at variance with, the, with the, the New Testament that says where there is remission of sins, there are no longer sin offerings. Okay, so sin offerings is one thing that puts that kind of interpretation in jeopardy. Uh, but there are five others. Uh, I'm, I just alluded to, to one, one other one. It was the Levitical priesthood. Uh, the book of Hebrews is replete in setting up Christ as superior over the Levitical priesthood. And so the question would be begged on the ultra-literalist interpretation of Ezekiel 40. Uh, if you have a better priesthood, why would you why would God reinstate a lesser priesthood? That would totally actually, destroy the pattern uh, that God had set up to that point. Um, God's pattern is to better his people. And every time he makes a covenant with them, it is to move them further along. And so if you're saying that basically, well, we have this better priesthood in the new covenant, but at some point we're going to revert back, or at least the Jews are going to have to revert back to a Levitical priesthood, which we already know from Hebrews is inferior to Christ's priesthood, well, then you'd, you'd have to allege a, a break in the pattern of God, in the redemptive pattern that God has set. Um, but you would also have to, you would also have to admit of some kind of an insufficiency in Christ's priestly work. In other words, if you need other priests, see, this is the problem that Roman Catholicism runs into. They believe in a priesthood, a priesthood uh, that is contemporary to us as believers, a continuation of uh, so to speak, of the priesthood of old. Um, it's obviously not an identical continuation, but it is a kind of continuation. And um, 
the problem is, of course, is that, well, if you have the one other greater priest who fulfilled all of the priests and the functions of the priesthood of the past, then why would you need other priests unless in, unless in some way Christ's priesthood just was lacking in, in, in something? Uh, and, and that would be that would be the question. Ultimately, it would come down to is Christ's priesthood superior truly? And if it's superior, is it sufficient? Is Christ's priesthood sufficient or are we in need of other priesthoods? And of course, I think the answer should be no, but you see Ezekiel 40, 46 affirms a priesthood that operates and ministers in that Ezekielian temple. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him. That's Ezekiel 40, 46. And so if you interpret that to be literal, as in a literal Levitical priesthood. Um, these are descendants of Levi. These are those who will not have any inheritance in the land of Israel. They will only have a, a their, their portion will be God himself. Um, if you take that to be a literal priesthood, well, uh, then none of the benefits, for, for, for one, none of the benefits that that's conferred upon them are conferred upon uh, the other members of other tribes, right? Uh, their portion is God. Uh, but the other tribes people, uh, the other members of the other tribes, their portion is land, right? So if you're, if that, that's how you would have to divide it up. There would definitely be distinctions introduced among people along those lines uh, in the future. And not only that, but there would be a priesthood. Uh, but Hebrews 8, 1 through 2, and really Hebrews 8, looking looking at the whole chapter, but it begins, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That means he's finished with his work. That's what being seated refers to. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, the true tabernacle refers to the true tabernacle, the true temple. That is not constructed with hands, which is why I don't believe that Ezekiel 40 onward is looking at a literal brick and mortar temple. It's looking at the true temple because notably missing is the builders or a description of the builders, the uh, the constructors, if you will, of that temple. Uh, the, the Old Testament is, is faithful to mention the builders of the tabernacle, the builders of Solomon's temple and even the builders of Zerubbabel's temple, but never mentions builders of the Ezekiel temple. And so that is a hint that it's actually looking forward to a temple that's not constructed with hands. You fast forward to the New Testament, and you begin to understand what the temple that's not constructed with hands is. It's both Christ and his people. Uh, so uh, that's why, that's one of the reasons, that's the alternative, that's the alternative interpretation of Ezekiel 40 onward is that it's not a, a brick and mortar temple to which we are, we are to look as a result of that text, but a true temple, what, what Hebrews calls a true temple, especially there in Hebrews 8. So there are two things, sin offerings and Levitical priesthood are present in Ezekiel 40 onward. And those are things that have been abolished or, or, or moved aside or fulfilled even by Christ and his new covenant. And to interpret those things as literal sin offerings and literal Levitical priests 
uh, you have your variance with what we know from the new the New Testament. The other thing, the third thing is consecrating blood. There's this concept of consecrating blood, which we're preaching through. I'm preaching through Hebrews at, at my church, and and um, one of the chapters that we've just completed is chapter 9. It talks about this, this uh, blood, this animal blood, the blood of bulls and goats that was used in a typological way to sanctify the artifacts of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, the people, and the book of the law, which are all described as uh, as copies of the heavenly things. Uh, later on in Hebrews 10, we learn that they're, they're, they're shadows, or they are a shadow of the substance, or a shadow of the things themselves, of the of the good things to come. But there's consecrating blood in this in this temple. In Ezekiel 43, verse 20, it says, You shall take some of its blood, the bull's blood, and put it on the four horns of the altar. This is the consecration of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Okay, so here we have animal blood being used to purify uh, the altar, which in Old Testament times they did, and we would understand that as a typological purification of the temple artifacts, uh, looking forward to the sanctification and purification uh, that Christ would offer the true tabernacle in his own blood. And so, but you have these things depicted in the Ezekiel temple. And of course, if you, if you, if you take them literally, uh, you are at variance once more with the new covenant. Hebrews 9.12 says, that Christ came in not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Uh, temple restrictions. There are temple restrictions. No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Of course, circumcision is called by James in Acts 15.10, a yoke which was on the neck or was 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 foisted upon the necks of the disciples which neither our fathers James says nor we were able to bear and then verse 11 asserts that everyone's saved in the same way uh, in the same manner that is apart from circumcision of the flesh it doesn't matter if you're Jew if you come from Jewish parents it doesn't matter if you're a gentile everyone's saved in the same manner there is no distinction in Christ um but in Ezekiel 40 onward, we find distinctions that we know are alien to the new covenant, uh, distinctions that do not exist nor are instituted in the New Testament or in the new covenant. There are feast days which continue on in the Ezekiel, the, in the Ezekiel temple. In Ezekiel 45, we read about the feast days in verses 21 through 22. It tells us that in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on, the, on that day, the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bowl for sin offering. Um, again, this is at variance with the new covenant, in which we learn in Colossians 2.16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, the Messianic movement, or what is sometimes called the Hebrew 
roots movement will come in and they will say, and dispensationalists will argue along these lines as well, that those instructions for the Colossian church are for Gentiles only. Those those instructions are for Gentiles only. Colossians 2.16 applies to Gentiles only. It does not apply to Jews. Uh, So in other words, the argument would be, well, it's only the Gentiles who are not to be judged. Uh, in food or drink regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. But all of those things Jews either keep now or will keep in the future as part of God's redemptive plan. There's a spiritual significance to these things. Um, But in saying that, what they end up doing is they end up denying Colossians 3.11, which is a text that follows closely behind Colossians 2.16. And Colossians 3.11 follows up Colossians 2 by saying, it's, it's this new man, the new man that we put on, uh, all, all people in Christ, if you read all of Colossians, you'll, you'll see this, all people in Christ have put on this new man. And when you put on the new man, the new man is that in which there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. None of those things avail anything within the context of the new covenant. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so those things do not matter, all right, they do not matter in terms of the redemptive scope of God's plan. They just do not. And to say, well, that at some point in time, as part of as part of God's redemptive plan for the Jews, they're on a different program. In the future, they're going to be circumcised. They're going to, uh, you know, observe these feast days and all of this. Well, then you, you, you can't say that Colossians 2 or Colossians 3 applies to the Jew, uh, which I think would just be tantamount in saying to, to saying that, you, that the Jews cannot worship in spirit and in truth like the Gentiles can. The Jews cannot worship in spirit and in truth like the Gentiles can. They are bound to an external... Uh, a, uh, an external uh, fleshly destiny in offering up these sacrifices uh, for a thousand years or more, and uh, and of course circumcision. And I do not think that that is really what you want to uh, tell a Jew uh, if you are trying to uh, give them the gospel. You definitely do not want to. Uh, eradicate their Jewishness uh, culture. There, there are good things in every culture that uh, that people who are part of that culture and ethnicity would like to maintain and can lawfully maintain. But the second you ascribe something legal or spiritual or religious to a person's Jewish culture uh, or ethnicity, what you what you're doing is you're saying, well, then they're obligated. There's a there's an implicit obligation for them to do for them to do those those things um there's an old testament sabbath assumed in the ezekian temple the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut it shall be shut uh the six working days but on the sabbath it shall be open okay so you have this work rest principle work rest work rest it's work first rest last that's the Old Testament Sabbath. Work first, rest last, right? And that pattern changes in the New Testament where you 
rest first and then you work last, okay? So you rest to work, you don't work to rest. Um, and the the purpose of the Old Testament Sabbath was to show that it 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 the requirement, the burden, um, you must keep the law perfectly, and then you can enter rest, which was to be understood as being impossible. And it was really to move people toward an appreciation of God's grace and a desperation for Christ. Um, unfortunately, uh, many of the Jews started acting as if the, 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 as if man were made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for man. But uh, if you look in Hebrews 7, uh, the laws changed as a result of a change in the priesthood. You look in Colossians 2.16 again with the, with the Sabbath. Uh, Hebrews 4, the Sabbath has been changed. Uh, but in Ezekiel 40 onward, in Ezekiel 46, you don't see a changed Sabbath from that of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's the Old Covenant Sabbath that exists there in Ezekielian language. And um, so if you were to take that literally, again, you, you would be forced to import things that were given in the Old Covenant, uh, things that were given in the Old Covenant and that were sanctioned in the Old Covenant, necessary, required in the Old Covenant. You'd be importing those things into the New Covenant, thus mixing law with gospel. There are other things. The last thing I would mention is just the living water, uh, Ezekiel 47, 9, and it shall be that every living thing that moves Wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. This coincides obviously with the fishers of men analogy that Jesus uses in the New Testament. Um, and here, there, there, there are two options. You can interpret this literally in which you have literal water functioning as the water of life or the living water, right? Um, which is diametrically opposed to Jesus' words and the implications that he that he sets forth, that he is the water of life. It's not some literal water flowing out of a temple. It's Jesus Christ himself. And you look in places like uh, you look in places like um, John 14, uh, 14, 13 through 14, and Jesus says, "Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. All right, so Jesus is is the fountain of life. John 6, this analogy is drawn out again. Uh, to, make, to make something else the water of life would be to detract from the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So, these are reasons why I can't, in good conscience, see Ezekiel 40 onward as describing a literal brick and mortar temple, because it would require us to take everything therein mentioned as literal uh, rather than as figurative types or metaphors looking forward to literal things. All right, so I don't, it's not that I don't believe that there's not literal meaning. I believe that everything in Scripture is, is, is revealing literal meaning, true meaning. Um, but but there are uh, numerous ways that the scriptures communicate true meaning. Sometimes it does it through allegory. There in, in uh, Galatians 4, uh, Paul explicitly uses allegory. Uh, so sometimes, but but Paul is, 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 is communicating a literal truth through 
that through use of that allegory as well. I mean, no one would deny that uh, there is uh, allegorical language in all throughout uh, Revelation uh, or, or metaphorical figurative language, symbolical language all throughout Revelation. No one denies that, uh, well, at least a great number of people do not deny that the Song of Solomon is uh, is metaphorical. And and looking at the Proverbs, wisdom is personified. Uh, but we but we don't take that and say, well, because it's not a literal device being used to communicate a literal truth, that it's therefore not literal. No, it's communicating a literal truth through something like metaphor, metonymy, allegory, can be tropology, anagogy, uh, you name it. All sorts of different devices, literary devices that that scripture uses. So, and I think that's what's happening here in Ezekiel 40. And, 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 and some people will say, well, no, there's so much detail in Ezekiel 40 onward concerning this temple. Uh, it, I mean, down to its floor plan, right down to the rooms, um, and all of that. Well, detail isn't of itself an argument for a, uh, an actual literal brick and mortar temple, right? Detail there, you you have to connect that with something else. You can't just jump from saying, "Well, there's detail, therefore we're looking at a literal brick and mortar temple." Well, that's that's not the case. Uh, oftentimes, there are things described in detail which can in no wise can in no wise be taken literally. You see uh, details given to uh, certain things in in Revelation, for example, that people would agree are metaphorical, um, and just because there is some detail, they're used to describe them doesn't mean that they're therefore uh, literal dragons flying or streaming across the, the sky or, or, or these literal beasts with eyes in the front and back and all over their bodies and all of this. Um, and just because there is a great deal of, of detail in uh, Solomon's relationship with one of his wives in the Song of Solomon in the Canticles doesn't mean that it can't actually be pointing to a fuller sense uh, and, and I believe it indeed is. I stand with John Gill and, and seeing, and, and others, numerous others, and seeing their uh, a significant looking forward to Christ and his church. Um, and, and then, of course, you have bridal language and all of these different linguistic devices that, that, that often are accompanied by great detail. Think about Hosea 2 and elsewhere, uh, that, that, that aren't necessarily, you know, literally fulfilled. Uh, they're, or they're literally fulfilled, but they're not communicated literally, I, I might say. Um, so we have to make a, a distinction between literal communication or revelation or, uh, or, or interpretation and literal meaning. Meaning is always literal. That is, even if scripture is communicating truth through allegory or metaphor or metonymy or whatever, it's 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 communicating literal truth through those things. All right. So so meaning is always literal. The way the mode by which we interpret certain texts can't always be literal. Uh, Hebrews shows us a great number of examples of this, especially in Hebrews one, Hebrews five, uh, especially. So anyway, I hope this was helpful. Uh, kind of filling out more of my thoughts on on. Uh, Ezekiel 40 onward, uh, basically just to, just to conclude here, there are six things, there are more than six things, but there are six things that I've identified in this podcast episode 
that serve as reasons for why I do not see Ezekiel 40 onward as being a literal brick and mortar temple that will be fulfilled or that will come to pass in the future. That is because there are sin offerings in that temple. There is a Levitical priesthood in that temple. There's a consecration of with animal blood in that temple. There are fleshly temple restrictions. There are feast days from the ceremonial law exercised in that temple. And there's the Old Testament Sabbath. There is also the living water analogy that can in no wise be literal either. So is that six or seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I guess there's seven things. Seven things. So uh, those are seven things, seven reasons why I do not see Ezekiel 40 onward as being a literal future brick and mortar temple. Um, because those are all things, all the things that are included in that temple are 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 fulfilled and set aside in the new covenant uh, and are are no longer to be to be observed and are no longer necessary because they've been fulfilled in Christ. So God bless you guys. Hopefully this was helpful. Bye-bye.